come now to our Bible reading, which is a beginning and an end of James's letter. I'm going to be reading this from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible because it seemed to me to best uh, fit for us. And so, first of all, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And then to the end of James' letter, verses 13 to 16 from chapter 5. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin, for bringing us our reading. And to everybody else who has taken part in our service so far, welcome to all of you. Welcome if you're listening online. Wasn't Sam's spot great for the community kids? She basically said everything I'm going to say, and she managed to fit in Skittles, which I haven't, I'm very sorry to say. Those of you who have been coming week by week or have been joining us online will know that we have been looking at this New Testament book of James. The book of James is a letter from this character James, who we understand to be the brother of the Lord Jesus, and it's written to churches throughout the known world, what James calls the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And this is our last week looking at the book of James, and we come to look at this Uh, wonderful but very tricky subject of prayer. What have we learnt so far in the book of James? Well, week by week uh, we've been studying a number of issues and challenges that James addresses. 
uh, mostly that relate to the way that we, as God's people, should behave and act in our everyday life. But throughout all the different practical aspects of the Christian life that James has highlighted, there has been a common thread that runs through the book of James. And as we come to look at these very final closing verses of the book of James, I want us to look at them in the context of the way that James starts his letter, which is why Robin read to us uh, the very opening verses of chapter one. James starts off his letter, doesn't he, in very dramatic fashion. Consider it pure joy whenever you face troubles. Really? Are you sure, James? Don't you know what's happened to me? Don't you know what they did to me? Don't you know what they said about me? But this is James' very hard-hitting and punchy way of introducing us to the theme of his letter. Because far from being bad, James says we ought to consider our trials and our difficulties as good things. Why? Because James says trials are a testing of our faith. Testing of our faith produces perseverance, which in turn makes us mature and complete. And I guess it's that word maturity that really drives James' thinking through the rest of what he has to say in his letter. What does maturity mean, though? What is this thing that we talk about, spiritual maturity? We all get older, don't we? It's a sad fact of life. As we grow older, though, do we grow? If I have been a Christian for a long time, does it make me a spiritually mature person? I'm sure we can all think of people that we know who've been alive for a long time. And because of the way they are, we think, how can they have lived for so long and learned so little about people and life? I'm trying not to catch anyone's eye when I say that, by the way. In the same way, James says spiritual maturity comes from something other than just how long we've known Jesus. He says it has its roots in this thing called spiritual wisdom. James says uh, uh, you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything, if any of you lacks wisdom. But we can ask the same question of wisdom that we do of spiritual maturity. Does knowing a lot of stuff make us wise? You know, we can go to school and college and we can learn lots and lots of things. We can follow endless links on Wikipedia, as I do sometimes when I've not got a lot to do. And we can end up with a head full of rubbish, basically. (laughs) Does it make us wise? James says spiritual maturity... Spiritual wisdom come from something other than longevity and knowledge. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. In other words, spiritual wisdom isn't something we can get from reading the Bible and learning the Bible and reading books about the Bible and about God. As good as all of those things are, it is a gift from God. So that's it. It's an easy answer to our conundrum of spiritual maturity. 
All we have to do is ask God. And James reminds us that God gives generously to all. And even when we've got things wrong and we've got mistakes, he gives to us without finding fault. Except there's a but that follows. It always seems to me the biggest statements in scripture are preceded or followed by the smallest words. And this is no exception. But when you ask... You must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, double-minded and unstable in all they do. So when we ask for wisdom, we should be focused and single-minded on what we're asking for, which seems obvious really, doesn't it? Why would we ask for something that perhaps we don't really want? Why would we ask God, who gives generously, in a half-hearted fashion? Why does James tell us that we can be double-minded when we approach God and ask for things? Well, how often is it that we pray for wisdom and guidance in a situation. And yet what we're really doing is seeking some kind of spiritual-sounding vindication for being able to stamp our own understanding and our own solution on that situation. But to be single-minded... Uh, as we ask for wisdom, is to seek not our own wisdom, but to seek God's wisdom and not the world's wisdom, or perhaps the wisdom that the world tells us that we should be having. In other words, it is to be in submission to God's will for our lives. And so throughout the letter of James, he challenges us over and over again with one question. Does what you believe make a difference to the way you live your life? Are you single-minded and focused on what you believe God wants and wills for your life? Or are you double-minded? Do you believe with your head what the Bible says and what we know to be true about Jesus, but want with your heart what the world tells you you should want and strive for. And James talks about a whole range of experiences where we are torn between our own desires and our own yearnings and strivings, and on the other hand, what God's will is for us. And he talks about humility and pride, anger and how we should manage it, gossip favoritism, showing preference to rich people and poor pe- or poor people, uh, showing preference to people we perceive to be important, adultery, murderous thoughts, care for the poor, how we should speak and talk. And ironically, James has a lot to say about how we should speak, how we should treat employees, think about money in the future, and so on and so forth. At the end of all that, we ask ourselves a question, what then is the mark of spiritual maturity? Is it 
how reverential we look when we sing worship songs on a Sunday morning? Is it having a nice big black Bible? Is it how spiritual and scripture-laden our conversation is after coffee, uh, when we're having coffee after church? Or when, well, when we're allowed to have coffee again? James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility. Submission to God. James goes on in chapter 4. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That phrase that James uses again. And then he says something very odd. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, as Christians, shouldn't we be people full of joy and laughter? People full of gloom and mourning aren't going to be a very good advert for spiritual wisdom, surely? Then James goes on to say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And I think what James is trying to get at is something like this. We should change our laughter to mourning and joy to gloom when it is laughter and joy that we think we deserve because of something that we have done and we have achieved in our lives. James says, be prepared to put off what you think you deserve, what you think you can give yourself, and instead humble yourselves before the Lord, and in God's time, he will give you his joy and his laughter, and he will raise you up. Which, of course, gives us the clue to the other thing that runs along James' teaching on maturity and spiritual wisdom. And that is what Chris spoke about very powerfully last week, patience. James talks, doesn't he, right at the very beginning of his letter about perseverance, because he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And really, I guess... A lot of the battle we feel inside ourselves as we seek to submit to God's will is not always related to what we want, but when we want it. If I was to take a straw poll of you all and say, who of you wants God's will for your life? You'd probably all put your hand up and say, oh, yes, I do. But so often we want the right things, but at the wrong time. In other words, we want what we want now. Which is why James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, so many of the things that we've looked at in the book of James, it seems, are a product of people perhaps wanting the right thing, but at the wrong time. Not being prepared to wait for God's will, but trying to make things happen in their own time. And so it's no wonder that as James heads toward the end of his letter... He's trying to think about what he wants people to really take away from all of the things he said. And he says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And he uses this example that Chris talked about of a farmer who has to wait for the land to yield its crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You know, the farmer can't hurry any of these things up. They have to happen at the right time. But the trouble with patience is 
It takes time, doesn't it? You know, I tried paying for patience, but God took too long to answer. And so as James comes to these last few verses, he focuses on the one thing that people can do while they're waiting, while they're being patient, while they are submitting to God's will. What is the answer? What can I do now? James says, pray. Pray. How should I react when I am waiting for God to answer my prayer? When I am struggling to know what the right thing to do in my will is? When I am struggling to get spiritual wisdom and maturity? When I am finding it so hard to be patient? When I'm torn between what the world tells me I should want and what I know God's will for my life is? When troubles come that seem beyond me? When troubles come that don't seem beyond me and I think I know what the answer and the solution is? James says, pray. Pray. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. And to illustrate the importance of prayer, James picks out two times when we should pray. He says, you should pray in times of trouble. And if you're not in trouble and it's good times, you should still pray. And I guess really those two situations sum up all of our lives, don't they? We're either in trouble or times are good. And the reality is for most of us that we have a bit of all of that most of the time. James has already talked about uh, in the passage that Chris looked at last week, the trouble and the suffering of Job and the prophets. And James doesn't for a moment let us think that because we are followers of Jesus, because we are striving for spiritual wisdom and maturity, we are somehow going to be immune from suffering. The briefest of scans through the Old Testament prophets, the heroes of the Old Testament that James readers would have been so familiar with are stories of heartache and suffering and trouble. Jeremiah suffered opposition at every time. Ezekiel was bereaved and in the midst of his bereavement God says you're not to weep or lament or shed any tears. Thanks God. Hosea was told to take a wife that he knew to be adulterous. The book of Hebrews tells us that Isaiah was the one who was sawn in two. Maybe James would have said he was double-minded at the end of that. (laughs) At the very least, all of these prophets, all of these people had messages to bring from God that people didn't want to hear. And so they suffered. But they suffered because they were serious about submitting to God's will for their lives. If any of you are in trouble, you should pray. What should we pray when it may well be that the source of our trouble, the source of our suffering, is trying to carry out God's will in our lives? In the book of Revelation, we have a very interesting insight into the prayer of the suffering church. John writes, he opened, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the souls, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord? 
holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. That's a pretty strong prayer, isn't it? I wonder what we would have thought if Paul had stood up and said, now let's pray. How long till you avenge their blood? What is the church praying for? The church is praying for God to do that which he has always declared he would do throughout his word. It's no different from the prayer that up and down this country, throughout the world, thousands of churches will be praying, Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Words that are so familiar to us, we are perhaps prepared, uh, perhaps uh, tempted to forget what they really say and the consequences of it. When we are in trouble, what should we pray? Lord, make this problem go away. Lord, I want this to happen. Lord, I want that to happen. Lord, if only you would do this, my life would be fine. What Jesus says we should pray is, your will be done as it is in hev- on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, remove from me all earthly aims and desires and allow your will to be done in my life as perfectly as, and as completely as it is in heaven where there are no earthly desires. What was it Jesus prayed before he was arrested and tried and executed? My father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And James goes on to talk about being happy. When we're happy, we should sing songs of praise. as praying, isn't it? Interestingly enough, the word that we have translated in the NIV as happy, Robin didn't read from the NIV, Robin read from the New Revised Standard Version. Don't worry, Robin, we will pray for you. Um, The word we have translated in the NIV doesn't mean to be trouble-free or free of any problems. Rather, it means to be buoyant or to be happy in spirit, whatever the circumstances. What songs of praise should we sing? Thank you, I have all the answers to all my problems. Thank you that I have no problems in the first place. The prayer of the song of praise we sing should be the same as the prayer we pray when we are troubled. Thank you and praise you that your will has been and is being and is continue, going to continue to be done on earth as it is in heaven even though we might want to add, I really don't like what I'm going through right now and I find it hard to see how I'm going to get through this. And with those two situations, James sums up what we might be feeling. Trouble and suffering is going to come our way, probably on a regular basis. As troubles come, we have either submitted to God's will for that situation or we are struggling to. And for most of us, we're probably swing somewhere between the two. Whichever situation we find ourselves in, we should pray. And I think that James knows in either situation, we are probably likely not to pray. 
which is why he reminds us, you know, the onset of trouble can lead us to become angry and resentful and mealy-mouthed towards God. In the good times, we are liable to become complacent and apathetic. But in both situations, we need to focus on God and his will for our lives and think very seriously about how committed we are to seeing that will being done in our own lives and situations. And whatever the circumstances, talk to God about it. There's something else I think we see, just as we look at the last couple of verses, and something that I think is very peculiar to James. We're used to reading New Testament letters written by Paul, who was, of course, an evangelist and uh, was very good at putting together an argument, what we would call nowadays apologetics. James, on the other hand, was a pastor. We only ever read about James in the New Testament as leading the church in Jerusalem. I would guess most of his life he spent dealing with and addressing the same issues over and over and over again. And that's why when he writes this letter, he wants to write about these very practical issues that we face in church. And I think so much of what James has to write came out of his own experience of running a church. And I like to think of James now, having said in all situations we should pray, he sits back in his chair and he thinks, now, what examples can I give? I want to give some practical pointers to these folk about praying and their attitude towards prayer, and what what things have happened to me which can best demonstrate how we should pray. And James thinks, right, prayer prayer should be our first port of call, not our last resort. Prayer should be a simple, practical matter of just talking to God about whatever's going on in our lives. Prayer should be, thinks James, It's a matter of trying to discern God's will for our lives and then making it a reality. And I think James thinks back to what he was doing the day before, perhaps in the week before as he sought to pastor his church. What event stood out in his memory? Ah, yes, there was the old man who was ill, very ill. And he calls his wife in and says, I think it's serious this time. But he doesn't need to tell his wife that because she knows it. The old man says, I know what we do. We'll do what Pastor James always tells us to do. We'll pray. Let's get the church to pray as well. And it's just that simple. Any of you are sick? Pray. No need to wait for one of the great apostles who had known the Lord Jesus to turn up. No need to wait for the great Apostle Paul to return from one of his missionary journeys to pray for the old man. No need to wait for the well-known preacher with that famous healing ministry. We'll just pray. Let's get the church family to pray. And it's the elders who are asked to pray. Why the elders? Is it because the elders are super spiritual and all have uh, blessed and anointed healing ministries? No. (laughs) No. I can tell you from experience, that's not something that happens. It's the elders who are asked to pray because then, as now, the chief role of the elders in the church is to care 
for the folk in the church. So it's completely natural that when there is a caring ministry, the elders are called. Doesn't mean to say, of course, it's only the elders who care. We are all called to look after and pray for each other. But that's why the elders are called. James, I think, is imagining someone who is very sick and poorly. He obviously can't come to church. The elders come to him. And it seems that the man is too poorly perhaps to even pray properly for himself. I would have to say, whatever your circumstances, whatever your practical situation is, this is still a duty that the elders of this church take very seriously. And if you feel you need prayer for whatever situation you're in, please do talk to us because we would love to be able to share and talk that through and to pray with you. So the elders pray for the person in faith, they anoint them, and the prayer, or maybe the prayer and the anointing, makes the, mag- makes the person well. The magic formula is applied and a miraculous healing occurs. Having prayed for people on a number of occasions in these kind of situations, I would have to say the results have been a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. If, as I understand it, this scene that James sets is perhaps a scene at the end of life's journey, uh, then from a human perspective, a miraculous healing is probably unlikely. And yet James seems to be pretty firm on the outcome being a good one when experience would seem to sometimes suggest otherwise. We don't have time this morning to delve into the massive topic of why God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we would like, but there are a few things I think we should be aware of. There's the question of faith, isn't there? It says the elders uh, uh, pray in faith. There's anointing oil. What about the oil? Perhaps you might use the wrong kind of oil. You might be lacking faith. There is the question of sin. It seems to mention there's some confession of sin that goes along with the prayer. Well, just a few things I think that might be worth thinking about. Uh, There are people who believe that sin leads to illness and disease. And it is true that in the very, very widest context of creation, we know that from the story in Genesis, when sin entered the world, along with it came disease and sickness and ultimately death. It may also be true that on occasion, God uses a misfortune or illness or a, some sort of downturn to perhaps get our attention, perhaps bring into focus some aspect of our lives he wants us to think about. I think in this passage, the mention of sin to me seems incidental and the forgiveness is almost an added bonus. And I think it's probably more likely that James is considering a person who is ill, has probably got a lot of time on their hands to sit and think about life and they want to maybe think about ending well. They want their conscience to be clear. And so, of course... It is the duty of the elders, as they listen to what the person's saying, to remind them that sin confessed to God will, of course, be forgiven. 
And that is quite incidental to anything to do with their health. The prayer of faith that the elders offer should be understood in the context of the rest of what James says in his letter. In James 1 that Robin read to us, uh, James talks about asking for wisdom and the one who asks must believe and not doubt. But James goes on to talk, doesn't he, about being double-minded. And the rest of the book of James is concerned with submitting ourselves to God's will. And that surely is the chief aim of the prayer of faith. It should be single-mindedly focused on submitting to God's will, God's loving and perfect will, which he desires for his children, and not our own wants and desires. Can we mortals really assume to tell God what to do and how he should do it? Of course not. But we can ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The other thing I would just add in is that there is no such thing as a non-spiritual healing. You imagine a situation. The elders are called to pray for the person. The next day, the doctor turns up and prescribes a course of pills, which makes the person well. Neither outcome is better or worse. Neither outcome is more spiritual or less spiritual. Warren Wiersbe said this, he says, when I go to the doctor's waiting, uh, the doctor and sit in the waiting room, I am waiting with one eye on what God is going to do through the doctor. When I go to church and ask for prayer for healing, I go with one eye expectantly waiting on what God is going to do through science and medicine. And I think a clue to this lies in the use of anointing oil. The elders are asked to pray, and as they pray, they anoint the person with oil. Now, in the 21st century, we've probably lost some, um, some of the significance of anointing people with oil. But James's readers would have known that in the Old Testament, people were anointed for a variety of reasons. But it was almost always to signify that God had chosen that person for some special reason or because they would go on and do something particular, not because of what they would and could do, but because of what God was going to do in their lives. Whether it was a a cleansing ritual or consecration for the priesthood or uh, a coronation or a marriage, the meaning was clear. Anointing was all about what God was going to do in the life of that individual. The elders pray a prayer of faith, not necessarily knowing what to ask for, but wanting God's will for that situation to be carried out anyway. And as they do so, they anoint the person to make it very clear that whatever was going to happen was going to be done by God. And that really is the exercise of faith. 
to, to allow God to do his thing and not to dictate what we think we sh- should be done and just how and when it should be done. And the sick person is made well. Well, not quite. Because the word we have translated as well in the NIV means on one level to deliver or to save. And whilst it is used sometimes in the New Testament to refer to rescue from imminent danger or death, it is mostly used to refer to spiritual salvation from eternal death. It seems that perhaps James is more concerned with the spiritual restoration and welfare of the person than of their physical state. Just hold that thought for a moment as we move on to the very last thing that James has to say in this section. Having thought about praying for a sick person that James maybe has recently visited, I like to now think of James as thinking of another situation that perhaps has recently occurred in his church. Two members of the church who have fallen out. You know how it goes? One says something very hurtful on perhaps a bad day they're having. The other person takes it the wrong way. They then hear, or at least they they think they hear something, but in fact they've misunderstood what's going on. They've shared it with a few other people as a matter for prayer. You know how it goes. But by the time they've realised their mistake and their misunderstanding, actually it's too late because they've told lots of people about it. Both people are now on the defensive. The situation goes from bad to worse. The rift is threatening the unity and the spiritual life of the church. Any thought of submissions to God's will has gone out the window. I would suggest if James had to deal with that sort of situation in his church once, he probably had to deal with it dozens of times. And I don't need to tell you that such events have a poisonous effect on the life and the ministry of the church, of those involved and of those who seek to intervene. So as James thinks about practical pointers towards our attitude for prayer, this one is a no-brainer. Confess your sins to one another. Sins, let me make it clear, should always be confessed to God. And if you confess your sin to God, it will be forgiven. And maybe somebody here this morning needs to just go away with that one thought in mind. If you have done something wrong and you confess it to God, he will forgive you. But if we are serious about contrition and about the need for repentance and we have hurt people, we should also seek the forgiveness of that person. To own up to doing something wrong and having made a mistake, especially as if time has passed and perhaps worse things have then been said by both people on both sides, to own up and to ask for forgiveness takes 
courage. It takes a lot of guts. But if someone does do the courageous thing, if they confess their wrongdoing to the person that they have hurt, you know, sometimes it takes even more guts to extend the loving and gracious hand of compassion and forgiveness and mercy. What a wonderful picture James paints of reconciliation of resubmission to God's will, maybe two people who have been at loggerheads. They have asked for forgiveness from God. They ask for forgiveness from each other. No longer at loggerheads. What a powerful ministry those people can now undertake. No longer double-minded, saying one thing, but believing another with their heart, they are now single-minded and focused on submitting to God's will for their individual lives and that newly restored relationship. But note the outcome that James refers to. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other So that you may be healed. The pair are not restored or saved or lifted up like the sick man was, but rather they are healed. And so we come back to that idea of the importance of submitting to God's will in our prayers and not being, as James would put it, double minded. When we pray, as James says, Uh, Or when we pray in our own name, we tell God what we think is wrong and we tell God what the outcome should be. When we pray in the name of the Lord, as James says, the, uh, the prayer of faith is given, we are submitting to God's will. In both cases here, the outcome was not necessarily what was expected. The sick man was saved and lifted up. The pair who had fallen out were actually healed. Our loving Heavenly Father always knows what is best for us. Not necessarily what we want, or what perhaps the world tells us we should want, but rather he gives us his very best, what we need. Who of us can say who needs lifting up and who of us needs healing? And no wonder that James goes on to say the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why? Because the prayer of one who is single-minded and focused on submitting to God's will for their lives, and what can be more righteous than that, seeks out what God knows is the best answer for prayer and what can be more powerful and effective than that. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you imparted through the writing of James 2,000 years ago to the church. And we thank you that that wisdom is still meaningful and relevant and as helpful and as life-giving now as it was 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you are a loving Heavenly Father who is not exacting and giving of what we deserve, but instead gives to us abundantly from your riches. We thank you that whether we are troubled or sick or joyful or whether we've made mistakes and we need forgiveness, that we can always come to you. You We thank you that whenever we come before you and say, Father, I'm sorry for the things I've done, you will always say, I forgive you because of what my son did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we thank you that that forgiveness is unconditional and comes from the loving heart of the Father who wants the very best for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone this morning who has prayed for so long, wanting healing or restoration of relationships. Help them to know that you hear all our prayers and you answer in the very best of ways, at the very best of times. And you are never too early, and you are never too late, but you are always just on time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.